What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner, and this week on the show, we have the man behind the injector, car owner, and all-around gearhead, Mr. Jack French from Atomizer Injectors. Jack, what's going on? Hey, Brian. Good to talk to you. Everything's good. Awesome to have you on the show. Uh, You are an extremely busy man across the board, and right now you're probably living a little bit of a nice break in life because y'all got a, a break from the uh, the No Prep King series where you were the owner of the Jackal, right? Yeah, that's correct. We have um, we have about six weeks off, I think. The first part of the season was pretty hectic, uh, with June having four races in a row every weekend all over. And uh, but you know, No Prep is always known for having a hectic schedule and um you know it kind of gives you gives you uh, a challenge in that you have to figure out the logistics of not only uh the racing part of things but you have to be able to run your business at the same time in my case so um you know it's a challenge but it's fun we, we enjoy being pressured because we perform better under pressure i think we'll get into more of the the no prep side of things too because i think that's going to be an interesting thing to talk about you get your take on that but i wanted to talk about you know i don't even really know this and i think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear is kind of let's rewind and talk about you know what got you into the sport of drag racing and ultimately led you to starting you know atomizer injectors uh well actually back when i was very young, before I could even drive, I got my first car. I got into cars when one of my best friends was a couple years older than me. He started getting into cars, and then I was like, kind of like, wow, this is really cool. I want to do this. And um, so I did whatever it took to earn money when I was younger to buy my first car. And the first car was a 68 Dodge Charger RT, and uh, it was a 444-speed car. It took me two years to uh, earn enough money doing odd jobs pay for it and it was it was a whopping fifteen hundred dollars back in 1980 that i bought that car and um so that was my pretty much my first car and my baby and got me going with the performance side of things and that led to uh you know once i got my driver's license and 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 all that i started to you know do a few things on the street on the back roads of pennsylvania where i grew up and uh you know street racing was part of life back then and you know they of course weren't nearly as fast as they are now but um we were pretty fast back then and uh it was a challenge to you know be the king of the street in our area so that got me into the drag racing part of things and then uh after that after school you know i went to college and so forth and uh started working on mechanical engineering and and that sort of stuff and uh landed a job at Siemens um, fuel injection in Newport News, Virginia, and I I worked for them from 1989 until 2012, 23 years, and, and I did solely OEM injector manufacturing. Uh, we were making upwards of 25 million injectors a year in a fully automated facility with uh, several clean room environments. Uh, the, the lines that we ran had robots and, and conveyors and uh, laser welding and vision systems. And there was an array of 
late technology stuff. I mean, really late um, advanced technology to put these injectors together. As you know, you know, fuel injectors have very precise tolerances and so forth. So we used uh, we used some pretty sophisticated uh, equipment. And then, um, you know, as as my career career progressed through Siemens, we started doing more product development. I got on the product development and design team uh, for process and product. And in that, we I, I got to travel a lot all over the all over the world actually. And, Italy and Europe and so forth, um, we were sourcing automated equipment and machining equipment and so forth to to meet the challenges of our new products that we had designed, you know, to be able to actually make these things, you know. And uh, many of it came from Switzerland, Germany, you know, the, the really high-end places for, you know, high automated machinery. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to be involved with that for all those years because basically um, the biggest fuel injector that was available back then was the Bosch 160-pound CNG truck injector that everybody was putting in their race cars at the time. And uh, what happened was they were having to use multiple sets of those because that was the biggest injector. And um, I recognized that, that, hey, there might be a uh, an opportunity to – come up with a new design that flows more than that particular injector and have it be a purpose-built piece and take some design experience that I had and, and, and put it into making it better, making it uh, more responsive, larger coil, larger flow rates, and better materials to make it open and close faster. You know, we use proprietary materials as atomizer injectors. You can only buy them one place in the world and it's in the United States to buy the best stuff. It's all military grade materials, um, solenoid magnetic materials, stainless steels, special alloys. Anyway, um, with all that said, uh, I came up with a design back in, uh, 2004. I actually built the first prototypes and we put them in a race car and, and tested them and, and made changes. And so in 2007, we ultimately launched our very first 500 pound injector. And, you know, it, it, it came out real well. It, it actually kind of changed the game for the methanol side of things. Uh, we could actually put a lot of boost in these racing engines that didn't have the capability of running methanol in an EFI capacity, you know, and, um, so things started to really evolve after that, and then we got further along in, in the evolution of the injector, and we came out with Atomizer 3 and then the 700-pound injector and so forth. Now, we have, now we're currently making stuff as, as big as 1,100 pounds, and, uh, you know, it just keeps evolving, and we're trying to uh, make it attractive to use our products because of the complete design experience that we've had. There's many, many years of evolution in these injectors, and they're not just a simple piece to make. You know, to be able to control them and to be able to uh, to make them do what you want them to do precisely, there's a materials, uh, there's a materials element there that has to be part of the game, plus the tolerances are very tight. So, you know, injectors are more than just a little commodity that you just pick up and put in your car. There's a lot of engineering involved in it. So 
So uh, we we faced some challenges with the tight tolerances in that uh, you know we have we we introduce any kind of contamination, and this this is kind of true for most injectors out there, but especially the high performance you know high flowing injectors, they have to have tight tolerances. So, you know the the challenge is to uh, educate everybody about how critical it is to not have any particles in your fuel system because it can cause a leak, it can cause a stuck open injector, and so forth. And uh, there's no one that has a inlet filter in the top of the injector that can handle the flow rates of these larger injectors. So the the, the big injectors that are available out there right now, when I say big, they're over. Know, over 300 pounds an hour those injectors you'll see them without any of the little filter baskets in the top of them and that particular uh, part cannot be used because no one makes one that flows high enough not to hamper or not to decrease the flow of the injector when you put it in there so you know we're actually working on something right now uh, that will change the game in, in terms of the integrated filter for the high flow injectors we should be seeing something in the fall so we will have capability of putting that filter situation in these higher flower higher flowing injectors and uh, protected from any kind of foreign particles so that's basically uh it in a nutshell is a long-winded explanation but uh that's where we are right now we got some cool stuff coming out in the fall it, it's interesting to kind of hear that, you know, you came from the OEM side of things, you know, as most of us, you're a gearhead, kind of found a way to weave that in. And if you look back in time to kind of how the sport, you know, motorsports, but you know, we'll just stay with drag racing in particular, how fuel injection has really honestly changed the game across the board. Was there a moment for you when you all of a sudden realized, holy cow, we are changing the world. Was there a moment like that for you? Yes, actually there was. Um, you know, since we came out in the early, in the late 2000s, early teens, uh, we started setting world records with EFI and uh, surpassing a lot of, a lot of the mechanical side uh, of things in pro mod and, and a lot of your class racing, we were setting world records because we were able to fuel the cars and give them, give them, they had always had plenty of air with the blowers and everything, but, and the turbos, but you got to put the fuel in too. So when we were able to give them the fuel, we were seeing world records happen. We were seeing championships happen and changed a lot of things like in, in, in many arenas, you know, when you would, we, we, made a pro mod, uh, we fueled a pro mod to go 274 miles an hour, okay, and that was, that was just incredible for a quarter mile, mile an hour for a pro mod, um, that was one of the biggest things that stuck in, in my mind, like, hey, we really, we went from a 250 mile an hour car to a 274 mile an hour car, because the 250 mile an hour cars were blower cars, you know, and then the turbo cars, you know, the EFI came out and they just started blistering the mile an hour and blistering the ET. I mean, it took them a little while to figure out how to tune the cars and, and, and you know, get the, get those short numbers where they needed to be. But yes, moments for me were the big mile an hour, the big speed increases, the 
world-class championships and the world records, and we're still making them today. I mean, we're still setting them today. Um, you know, you take, a, you take a look at Rob Doss, for example. I mean, that guy, he has set every record in X275 uh, that you can imagine and won multiple championships. And, you know, he's always been an atomizer user. And, again, the Bruder brothers, they, they had changed combinations from turbo to procharger to roots blower and all that. And they always had atomizer in their cars, and they won a multitude of events and championships and set records with them. So, you know, just in the X275 arena, that's, that's some big stuff right there. And that all evolved from, you know, what we did in, like, 2010, 2011, and 12. And it started to uh, change that class. So, yeah, the, the class racers and the pro mod guys and, and the big mile an hour and horsepower, you know, it's just uh, an array of defining moments for me. So, um, the, the reason I kind of went with that question is one of my friends, Brian Turner, here locally that owns Dino Tune Motorsports, posted a picture of a legit time capsule car that he has tuned multiple times that is still it's a it's a fox body mustang with a ford motor with you know a 302 based engine in it and i mean it looks like it's stuck in like late 90s early 2000s and i looked at that and i started to think i was like started looking you know got in the youtube hole and started digging around and looking at old, you know, the older heads up radio racing and just how it's all progressed. And I got to thinking because I knew I was going to do the call with you. I'm like, it's amazing to think that the stuff that you guys have developed has really been a part of that bigger overall puzzle of making these cars faster. Because, again, you're able to feed it more fuel and tune these cars to an insane level. Yes. And, um, you know, another another big car out there, the time capsule car, was uh, the Lynch and Petty Mustang. You know, that that car five and so forth. And once they were able to have the fuel that they needed at the time, um, they just ran away with stuff. I mean, we're going to say English Town. I remember this day these days. They were running 10.5 still in a quarter mile, and they went 232 miles an hour on a 10.5 tire with a 3,000-pound Mustang, and that was with our stuff. And it was just it was amazing uh, to see a car that heavy with that small a tire go that fast in a quarter mile. Yeah. So uh, it was just that's another defining car right there that I'm sure everybody remembers that car. And um, you know, it was the thing that happened there was just amazing now do you guys a lot of times what drives the, the what, what pulls the cart do you guys try to come up with stuff you know in, in the technology flow or do people come to you and say hey i need to do this what can we do to make it happen because you you know again it's interesting on the fuel injection side of things like what we're seeing now that used to never be in fuel injected it is fuel injected kind of Inside the industry, what drives those kind of innovations? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm being involved with the sport as a, you know, a team owner and driver, used to be driver, going to be a driver again. Um, I'm, I'm up on a lot of the things that people already are are doing and want to do just because I'm involved in those, in those arenas. And 
it's my job. You know, I do all the design work myself. I do all the material sourcing and designing and, and so forth to try to give everybody what they need. And it's my job to recognize the, the shortcomings and the opportunities out there and be able to evolve the product into a better part year after year after year. And, you know, again, I said it a little earlier in the podcast that we are coming out with some new stuff in the fall. Uh, there's multiple, multiple changes coming and uh, it's to address exactly what you're asking me. How do I, how do I um, come up with this stuff? Well, I recognize what the needs are and what the kind of all the product based on what I'm seeing out there. And um, from from not just a horse power standpoint, concern in the race car because of Hello? Oh, boy, technical issues. Jackie, there? Range of flow, so you're going to see some cool stuff coming here in fall. You broke up a little bit there, the jo- the joys of doing podcasts. Uh, the last thing we heard about was the uh, the high horsepower stuff you have coming. Could you go over that again? Yeah, the high horsepower stuff, we're going to have, uh, we're going to be able to address the high horsepower stuff with a single injector per cylinder. It's been, it's coming. Um, it's going to be, and that also has a safety aspect involved. The safety side of things is uh, okay. So you have dual injectors. Some people really prefer to run dual injectors, and you're always going to have those folks that want to run two per cylinder, and then you have the folks that want to run a single injector, but there are some shortcomings on, you know, how much injector can you get and, and how much power can you make with one injector? Well, you know, the latest stuff that we're working on, you're going to be able to make the same power that you're making with two injectors and only use one injector and still have the control and still have the idle capability and the spooling capability and the burnout and the backup and so forth. Um, what, that does from a safety standpoint is, you know, if you have two injectors per cylinder and you have a failure on an injector, on a wire, on a driver, a piece of trash gets involved and it leans out the cylinder with only one injector, you turn it, you turn the cylinder into a basically a plasma cutter blowtorch and it creates fire and, and, and havoc and engine damage and potentially can, uh, you know, burn a car to the ground as we've seen. So, Basically, uh, with a single injector per hole, you definitely reduce that risk almost to zero. And if you lose an injector, you lose a wire, a driver, uh, anything to keep that injector from firing, well, then you just lose the hole. You don't hurt your engine. Um, For the most part, you probably won't hurt your engine. You probably won't have fire. You probably won't have any kind of damage. You might lose the race, but you're going to come back and you're going to fix it and with minimal effort and go back out there. And um, full service ability is also a thing that we're really working on. A field servicing issue. You know, there's new stuff coming in the fall that you're going to be able to completely service 
the injector, coil and all, in the field with regular hand tools. So you'll be able to um, put a couple spare coils in your box for your fuel injector mains and stuff. And you lose a coil, you'll simply be able to change it in 30 seconds in the field at the racetrack. And that's the, you know, that's one of the patented things that we have involved and to be able to service it in the field. So let's shift gears a little bit here and and talk about the, the whole no prep deal and how you became involved in that. Because originally it started with the, the VIX and the twin turbo car. And now you've got the, I call it the Hot Wheels car, the the Stratus, the Jackal with a, with a big old screw on top of it. Kind of tell us the story about how you went from being, you know, the, the man when it comes to fuel injection to all of a sudden, you know, sporting these nasty cars and being involved in the, the no prep racing? Well, um, James Goad, a.k.a. Reaper, uh, contacted me back in 2017, late 2017. And, uh, you know, we've been friends a while. And he asked me, you know, Vixen was a brand-new car at that time, and it was, a, it was built as a radio versus a world car at the time. And he asked me, hey, do you want to come race no prep? I said, Sure. Uh, I don't know what I would for a car. He says, why don't you use, you know, your black challenger? I said, well, I'd have to make some changes to the car to, uh, it'll, it'll, so I don't know if I could fit the tires and so forth. So I went and looked at the, uh, I looked at the car and looked at the, what it would take to run no prep. And I decided, yeah, let's do this. So we sent it to Bobby Carroll's shop in New Jersey and, uh, he changed the car over to run big tires and no prep. And um, basically it went from November to late January by the time the car was ready. This is season one that was in, uh, in process at the time, no prep came. So we were able to debut the car in South Carolina in February of 2018 as a no prep car. So, uh, and we ran the remainder of season one. And then uh, of course we made some changes to the car and then we ran season two and season three with Vixen. And it's a twin turbo Hemi car, uh, DeSoma motor in it. And uh, Rich Bruder was driving and Nick Bruder's tuning. And uh, that's still the case today. And um, so I was like, you know, I've got a twin turbo car. Everybody's out there with uh, EFI and twin turbos. You don't see too many blower cars out there with EFI on it. And I said, if I'm going to do a blower car, you know, the, the, the times the cars were getting faster and faster, the rules were changing. And I was like, you know, we should do a blower car. I think it has an advantage by the rules. And, uh, but I'm not going to do a blower car and put mechanical fuel injector being an EFI guy. I'm not going to do that. So let's develop EFI for a screw blower. So that's what, that's what, uh, motivated me to build the Jackal car. And, um, we originally put a pro charger on it at first and uh, we did EFI, which is a common, common scenario with those cars with a pro charger car EFI. Um, but then we were like, okay, we were, we were having some attrition with parts and so forth. And uh, we said, you know what, let's put a screw blower on this thing and develop the uh, EFI for it. Full EFI, not a hybrid mechanical EFI, full EFI. And so that's what we did. And, um, it was a little bit of a struggle at first trying to figure a few things out, but then, uh, you know, Nick's, Nick Bruder's talented guy, he, uh, he figured out the tune-up on it. And, um, 
we're actually making a few more changes to it right now, minor changes on the fuel system, and um, we're going back out there in the fall when the season kicks back off. But uh, we're real happy with how fast the car has been. We've had a few challenges with some other parts on the car and some, you know, some minor things in that regard. You know, we're figuring out the gearing and, and so forth with the EFI. But as far as the fuel system and the blower and everything, it's working great. And uh, basically, it, it was a mo- the motivating factor was to show that it can be done with EFI and not mechanical, not just mechanical or just hybrid. So now that's why we built that car. <laughs> yeah, and and of course you know you you own both the cars and you 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 stuck probably two of the best in the business when it comes to the Bruder brothers to kind of you know be the the driving and tuning setup on it. The how did they become involved in this project? Because like you mentioned earlier, and I you know I, I crewed for years. We raced against the Bruder brothers in X two seventy five, and they were the best in the business at the time. How did they get involved in being, you know, the 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 driver tuner combo for your your deal? Okay, well the story as it goes here is uh, I've been friends with them a long, long time, way before I built Vixen, and uh, I supported their X275 programs for many years. You know, I sponsored them, and they helped me develop. You know, they gave me feedback on on you know injector performance, and you know, we talked earlier in this conversation about about how do you uh, how do you come up with the new changes and so forth well they were they were instrumental in, in giving me good positive feedback in the rate small tire radial world and uh, so it was a natural thing for me to you know I was originally going to drive Vixen in, in the no prep but you know honestly I hadn't been driving since 2005 I had a um, I had a, an NSCA if you remember that back then. 2005, I ran super modified with a, a Hemi Barracuda with a Liberty transmission in it. And I, that's the last time I really drove. And I was like, you know what? There's not enough time for me to gain the experience I need to get in the seat of this car. So I'm going to ask Rich if he wants to drive. And uh, that's how it happened. Rich got in the car and he was, you know, he was originally going to shake it out and I was going to start driving and get used to it. But we started running out of time. And I said, you know what, he can just drive the car and he can tune the car and we'll figure this thing out. And when it's time for me to drive, I'll figure that out. So, and it just evolved into that, you know. And so they were running their car and try, and running my car at the same time for the first few seasons, you know. Uh, actually, at uh, one of the, one of the uh, season two races, I believe it was Maple Grove, they were driving back and forth to the Yellow Bullet Nationals and to the Maple Grove No Prep event. And driving both cars. Holy cow! <laughs> that that really did happen. <laughs> so uh, it was pretty pretty challenging for them, but uh, it worked out. So that's how they got involved. And it, again, it, it's interesting that one. Well, it, it's smart that you realized, hey, maybe it's not a good idea that I jump behind the wheel of a pro mod and try to go no prep racing when I've never done anything like this because that that probably saved you a lot of money and torn up parts and a lot of time and you know whatnot. But bringing you know a group like the Bruders in to kind of be part of the brain trust, that's got to also you know really help push the program along and accelerate what you can do that much faster when you're, you know, kind of blazing a new trail, right? Right. I was concentrating on business more than I was in, in my racing, personal racing efforts 
and uh, you know, Rich Bruder is probably one of the best drivers out there, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, it made complete sense if you're going to go after a, a new class and a new uh, scenario, don't put an added variable in there that you know could, could throw you off in left field, i.e., me driving the car without any experience. So I, I put I put Rich in the car for that reason because I trust him. He's a great driver. I trust his brother. He's a great tuner and um, that kind of, you know, narrowed the variables down a little bit. Yes, it was a new class, bigger tire, heavy car, long wheelbase, 116 wheelbase, um, 3,050 pounds in season one and two for the turbo combination with a heavy. So you're, you're putting all those variables in there, and, you know, to throw a, a, a green driver in the seat, in my opinion, is not the right thing to do, which was me. So that's why we put Rich in the seat. And then I was concentrating on, you know, we were developing stuff in business at the time. So I just decided to concentrate on business and let them run the car. I would be the, you know, I would be there, I, you know, for the races and stuff, but I was uh, there more as a crew member than anything else. <laughs> so, tighten the loose nut behind the steering wheel, right? That's it. Now, you know, you you kind of found an interesting way there to transition to my next question about this. You know, you've been around drag racing for a long time, all different levels. You know, you've raced and whatnot. And the No Prep Kings deal, you know, I was there for season one for an event. I've been to at least one event since it's happened, you know, since it started. And it's insane to go to these events to see the fans and the turnout what's your take on kind of watching this evolve and you know kind of what it's doing to the sport of drag racing i i honestly believe i mean i liked nhra pro stock for example for a very long time and um you know it was a it was it was more of what i was into before i started in the no prep team but i'll be honest with you the no prep racing in my opinion even from season one to now is season five. It is the best, the best racing arena in the world. But many things that create that best arena. And one of them is we went from season one running 420s, 430s, you know, with, with the cars that were out there. Uh, many of them were street cars. Many of them came off the street onto the track. And, you know, the challenge of having high horsepower on the street is you got to turn it down on the street. You know, the kind of the challenge in, in no prep is you have to have, you, you know, you got to turn it down a little bit. No prep, too, at first. But the tracks come around and you can turn it back up. Well, the evolution from season one to season five, the cars are running 390s, 380s, and maybe in some cases 370s now on no prep, which is an insane fast ET for a no prep scenario. And the technology to do that has evolved with, you know, all the different power adders. For example, you know, the nitrous guys, they're running some, they're running some big time multiple kits on there that they were never able to do. You know, I think some of them have seven kits on their car now. So, I mean, that's, that's crazy technology. And then um, you've got your your blower cars, uh, your, your turbo cars. We're having to figure out how to go 380s and 
370s, 380s, 390s, with all these different combinations. And to do that, you've got to change transmission technology. You've got to change, you know, control for your wastegates. You've got all kinds of variables in there to try to be competitive with all these different power adders. And, you know, they've done a pretty good job for the most part, I think, uh, keeping the rules and the, and the, you know, the parity between combinations pretty close. Um, it's just that, you know, to go from a 430 arena to a 380, 390 arena, it's just a, in five years, it's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just incredible. It's amazing, you know, when you talk to the different manufacturers that, you know, if you, you look across social media, and to me, to me it's entertaining because you have, I, I call them the social media experts, NHRA's dying, NHRA's dead. I went to the NHRA Norwalk race, and Bill Bader Jr. told me that that was the biggest turnout that they've had since 2012 across the board. Right. They're packed. You look at, you know, Bandemir this past weekend – Stands are packed. People right. talk about, you know, how, you know, no prep racing is awful. It's this, that, and the other. But I've been to some of the biggest no prep races in the world. Outlaw Armageddon, Dirty South No Prep Series, the No Prep Kings deal. And I have noticed across the board when it comes to the fans that it is the same that, that sweet spot demographic of young to old enthusiasts to people that just watch it, and it's not slowing down. It's no. like what it's doing for the sport of drag racing. I know some people, you know, they don't like, well, it's a TV show. Yeah, they tell you that right off the bat. It's a TV show first that has racing on it because it's got to be entertaining because that's what draws the people in. Do you agree the fact that the, the street outlaws on a whole, has had a positive impact on drag racing, especially just looking from a manufacturer, you know, from a standpoint there to across the board. You know, you've probably seen, been able to really see the, the impact it's had, right? Absolutely. I think I think it's had a very positive impact. I think it's, it's really great, you know, to see all the fans, the young and the old and everything. And, and to have a car there as a car owner, I can tell you that we encounter – a lot of people in our pits and we encounter people from young to old and they ask questions and they get to look at the cars up close and they get a, they feel more interacted. You know, they're interacting with actual drivers, owners, crew members, asking questions. They're curious. They want to know how you make it go so fast and so forth. You put the kids in the car, the kids get their pictures taken in the car. Everybody is, is just having a wonderful time you got the fans that are down close to the action. You know, you got the VIP areas. You've got the, the fans close to the TV cameras and so forth. And then you've got Boosted, who, you know, he's the MC this year. He, he, he helps uh, entertain the fans in between, you know, classes or if there's an oil down or if there's something going on to where there's no action on the racetrack. He's still entertaining the fans. We give them free T-shirts to give away. I mean, they're playing – they're playing foot race on the track. You know, it's just a complete fun time for everybody, and that has a lot to do with the impact on on the fans as a whole. And and, and I think that's always been it's always going to be good for drag race to keep the fans happy and entertained. So, and I think they do it better than anybody. It's 
it's been very interesting to see what I call the crossover factor as well. Because if you think about it, drag racing is a very compartment. Like, it's a broad sport, but it's carpet. Carpentment. I can't even use the word. It's carpentmentalized. Carpent. Ugh. You know what I mean? It's very si- it, It's siloed. It's, you know, people right. are just into this. They're into that. Well, I've really started to see the crossover at these different events where, you know, I, I call it the T-shirt test. It, you know, the NHRA race, I saw people wearing fireball T-shirts. I saw people wearing you know, radial racing shirts. I saw people wearing, you know, different bracket racing kind of shirts. And it's the same thing at the No Prep Kings event and at the radial races. I'm seeing all this bigger crossover now. And to me, that shows how much cross-pollination we're really starting to see in the sport. And No Prep is really helping with that. I agree 100%. And you know what? You can go to an NHRA national event and you're going to see a lot of fans around the pro class cars, you know, the top fuel cars when they start them up and they, you know, they, they set the clutch and all that with the big rev and the, and the nitro burn in your eyes. There's a lot of fans around and everything. We have just as many fans around our cars, all the cars, the turbo cars, the blower cars, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a 405 Texas, you know, a, 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 a different kind of racer, as long as, they're starting a car up. You see the fans navigate to wherever that car started up so they can listen to the car, watch them warm it up, turn the tires over, you know, watch them check the timing, check the for, for leaks, and, and especially after they've done maintenance on the car. If they've had the engine apart, if they've had the um, transmission out and everything, they want to know, hey, if that's their driver they, and their team, they want to know, are you guys going to make it? What would you have to do? You know, they're partially involved because they're there to and able to ask questions and get the answers and so forth. So the pro teams in the NHRA, you'll see that that as well. And when you talk about cross-pollination, I think, uh, I think you're seeing exactly the same things that you're seeing in an NHRA national event and a no prep teams event in, in terms of fan interest and fan interaction with the teams because they're able to walk right up to the cars and right up to the teams and look at things run and, and action besides just sitting in the stands, which is, I think, awesome. So, I've got, we've got all kinds of people that, you know, view drag zine, listen to the podcast. You know, there's people that, you know, I see in our comment section, they're not no prep fans, which is fine. Not everybody likes chocolate ice cream, whatever floats your boat. But I'm going to, one of the things that irks me and bothers me is the people that claim that how it's set up and it's rigged. So, I'm going to use my own experience here. I'm going to pull the curtain back just a little bit. At the Columbus event, I was at the top end shooting pictures. And during eliminations, the top end of the racetrack and the interactions down there, they're about as real as they can get. Would you not agree? Yes, 100%. The the cameras are down there. The teams come down to pick the cars up with the golf carts. They're doing interviews. Uh, The drivers, the two competing drivers are talking to each other. They're wrapping their shoots up. I mean, there's a lot of action going on down there, and, and it's, it's really cool. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, the team members, the crew members are there talking, and, you know, it's a good, a lot of good camaraderie down there for the most part. You have a little friction here and there, but, I mean, that's that's good for drag racing, I think. You've got, you know, a little bit of friction here and there, but I mean, for the most part, everything is very, 
professional and sportsmanlike. Exactly. So when I was down there, I got to see the stuff that happens on and off camera and hear different conversations. And I can tell you without a doubt that if you think any of this racing, if they pick the winners and it's rigged, you're smoking purple crack. Because I heard, <laughs> like some of the things that I heard these teams talking about and I'm going to say the frustration levels that they had that they weren't fast enough talking about who was faster, how to get faster, what we need to do is the exact same conversations that I had as a crew person working with an X275 car, working with limited drag radio cars, the stuff we talked about at the top end, it's the same thing. The competition with this stuff is as real as it gets. Like, yeah, you you have to play the drama up on TV. You have to, to make it interesting. No one is going to want to watch a bunch of bump on the logs. If Kai Kelly wasn't entertaining, would there be people wrapped around his, you know, trailer buying shirts? No. You know, if the Bruder Bruder brothers weren't the personalities that they have and what you guys do, would people want to buy the shirts and be around the trailer? No. So you've got to, you know, you've got to have a show to have a show. So people need to really watch this competition and what's going on because that to me is the story within the story. 100%. Um, For anybody who thinks that any of this stuff is... uh, Stage or, or pre-planned uh, in terms of the racing side of things. When you get up there and you get on the light, you know, the light is never the same. The green light, it's an instant green. It's never the same. The timing or the, uh, the, the tree guy controls when, when that thing comes on and the tower controls when the light comes on. Uh, they work together to make it so it's not predictable and it makes for really good racing. So, yeah, you're going to get a guy that's going to catch guess that light once in a while and if he guesses the light right and he goes down and wins the race you know you might see a little bit of a friction situation down there like hey man you guys the light you like that but uh, at the end of the day none of this racing part of it is pre-planned or staged it's all real racing it is not fake and uh it's just you know it's some some sometimes people think it is because of the tv side of things yeah you're gonna have drama in the pits you're going to have drama at the starting line or in the staging lanes, some of that going on. But when it comes down, when that light turns green, it's a real race. I assure you. I promise you. It's a real race. It's funny you mentioned the guessing of the light. I'm not going to reveal the two racers because none of this was put on camera. Uh, legit thought there was about to be a fist fight at the top end. Like, <laughs> just the way things were going down, like, you could just... You know, when they, you hear the the old phrase, all oh, the tension was palpable. Yes, it was. Like, legit, yeah. I thought the, like, the way this conversation was going and how these guys were getting closer, I'm like, we're fixing to see a good fight if this is about to happen. <laughs> like, yeah, and like, I, you're, you're going to see some friction uh, at the end of the, especially at the top end of the track, if there was, you know, some, some things like light guessing or some other things going on. I mean, the thing, there's a lot of tension. You know, this this is a highly competitive series. You're racing for forty thousand dollars. You're racing for more money than any other arena, except for maybe NHRA Top Fuel. You're racing for a lot of money, and you know, 
no one's going to give that money away. You have to earn it. And, you know, you can get some heated conversations and some, there has, there have been a few roll arounds in the dirt at the end of the track that I know of for sure. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it comes down to, Hey, I want to win just as bad as you do. And I feel like you might've, you know, did something I didn't like, you know, so you're going to get a little bit of that, which makes it, you know, it makes it real racing. It shows people it's real. Oh, and, and that honestly, and I've talked about this before. I've talked about it with the guests that is what the NHRA is lacking these days because it, it's a product of its own beast that they need the corporate sponsors to feed the beast to keep it going. So they've the drivers have to, had to pull back. Back in the if John Force would say the things now that he used to say to Steve Evans, it'd be a oh there'd be so much drama. Good lord, oh, yeah. like it's insane. You know, and the fact that you know oh there's been tension and whatnot. You know, like I always use the Cameron Frey, Steve Torrance deal. That was what was caught on TV. There have been documented, talked about stories of fights in the pits at NHRA races where, you know, it's like the the old code where we're going to settle this and one crew would go to the other team's pit and they'd have it out just like a dirt track race. That, (laughs) like, and if you've been to a dirt track race, if you know, you know, I've seen some better fights in the pits at dirt track races than I've seen on a UFC pay-per-view, and it happens everywhere. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the circle track and dirt track guys, they don't hold back. I mean, it's uh, it's all out when they get upset, and, uh, you know, that does happen. Now, you, you'll get tensions like that in the pits here and there at MPK if there's some, some things going on, but um, most of the time uh, you won't see that because most of the time it's not caught on camera, but... For the most part, like I said, uh, everything is cordial. Everything is sportsmanlike. Yes, if you don't have a little bit of friction here and there, if you don't voice your opinion, if you if you feel like something's not quite right, you you just let it go. I mean, no one wants to see that, and no one wants to one wants to experience that. So, yes, there's going to be someone calling somebody out for something. It's going to happen. Yeah. And it's interesting to, again, just see how all of this continues to evolve and, you know, what's happening in racing. Now, another thing I'd like to get your take on is, you know, the the no prep deal, you know, it's interesting being in the seat that I'm in because I can kind of see at the higher level the trends. No prep racing is maintaining a certain level of popularity and growing to a certain extent. The thing that I've seen grow exponentially is the drag and drive stuff. Holy cow. Yeah. What those guys are doing is like, it's insane to, to see them do that. What's your take on drag and drive stuff? You know, we'll say is a purely is like an enthusiast point of view on seeing what these guys are doing, like your Tom Bailey's and whatnot, and just that style of racing. What, what do you think of that? I think it's awesome. man. I really think that, that uh, drag and drive is, is a challenge of a different type and it's a challenge for not only to be able to have um, a car that can handle the drive and then go out there and run a five second pass like Tom or Larry Larson back in the day, you know, to do that is a whole different um, mindset in terms of planning and, and, and how you set up your fuel system and how you set up your maintenance and what you have for spare parts. That is a, that is an amazing, an amazing uh, different type of scenario, in my opinion. I think it's great. Um, 
back to the no prep king thing, I just want to make one more point about no prep kings. Uh, and when you say drag and drive, that's a different type of class. You know, no prep kings is not just an invitational class. No. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people know this, and I don't think a lot of people uh, understand that if you've got a race car, if you've got a fast race car, you can come and pay your way in to the future outlaws, and that's a class. If you want to ever be an invitational driver, you can jump in, pay your entry fee, race in future outlaws for prize money. I, I'm not quite sure what it is now, 3000 I think, to win. Uh, I'm not sure what the entry fees are. But you can drag your car to the racetrack at a No Prep Kings race, and you can race your car in future outlaws. You can race your car in outlaw big tire. You can race your car in small tire. You can race your car in daily driver. I mean, there are classes that the fan slash racer can actually get involved with and not be invited to the invitational. You know what I mean? A lot of people think that you have to be invited for all this, and you do not. You can just show up, pay your entry fee, and see if you got something for the for the class. Oh, so I'm. I think it's awesome. One of my project cars, um, I'm legit trying to see if I might run the small tire class at Norwalk. Do I have a snowball's chance in hell of winning? No. But you know what? It's a race that's on a very questionable surface, and you don't know what's going to happen. So throw a little bit of entry fee money at it. Just go up and, you know, you go up for the experience and have a good time. You want to have fun. Absolutely. So, you know, you've got guys showing up with daily drivers. Uh, you got some... You got some Hellcats up there. You got some badass Camaros up there. Then you got the guy with the minivan up there, you know? I mean, just just because you don't have a really killer race car doesn't mean you can't show up and go out there and compete. And, you know, I'm not sure that a lot of people out there know that you can do that. So I wanted to make sure that whoever's listening to this podcast knows that, hey, if you're a local guy to one of these races, don't be afraid to bring your car out and run. You know, there's a class for you. No, and so. it, it's the experience. It's having fun. You're never going to get the race in front of that many people ever again. You know, right. just just go and be a part of it. And, you know, you might have some kid come up and ask you for your autograph. You, you, you could, right. if you think about it, you know, you mentioned this, you know, people taking pictures in the car. What's it going to be like, we'll say in another five to ten years, when we start to see young racers come into their own and we're going to see a picture of them from when they were a kid sitting in you know jackal talking about that that's what got them into racing i think that's what people need to understand and realize what the, the impact that no prep kings is having is the same impact that nhra had back in the 70s 80s and what 60s 70s and 80s it's having that kind of impact and potentially influencing the future of the sport Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that that is what we want to see. We want to see more interest from the young folks because they are the future racers from the kids that are just barely old enough to get in the car to the five year olds to the 10 year olds. Hey, they might be wanting to go out and get a junior dragster next year because they were like, wow, this is really cool. I got to go to a major event. There was a lot of people there and there are always a lot of people at No Prep King Race fans. Uh, I mean, there's the, the stands are packed in, in most cases. And um, to have a little uh, a young fellow or a young lady 
say, hey, I want to do this, is, is what we try to influence. We try to give them a positive experience so that they, you know, grow the sport for our future. Well, again, it, it ties into sport participation, and you'll see people that jump multiple classes and genres of racing. I mean, you, you see people that are heads-up racers that are, you know, now they're out big-money bracket racing. You know, you, you get in where you can fit in, and what I'm seeing, too, is a big jump in some of these all kinds of smaller local events, prepped and no prep stuff, that you see these same people that, go to these events to hang out or they have a crew person that's there or they crew on a car and it's being able to continue to grow the sport that this is having such a big impact on. Exactly. And, and you know, we, we, we failed to mention about uh, the influence side of things in one area, you know, maybe they don't want to be a driver. Maybe they want to be a, a, a crew member. Maybe they want to build engines. Maybe they want to, you know, learn how to set up rear ends and ch transmissions and so forth. You, you could be influencing somebody to just get a career in motorsports in general and, and something that they're interested in. Maybe they don't want to be a driver, but they want to be a, you know, they want to be an, a, a crew member or even a team owner at one point. So, um, you know, I think there's there's more to it than, than we'll ever see as far as the ambitions on some of these folks that come to these races. And to kind of tie it back in, you know, the, to, to go back to the Dragon Drive stuff, too, is that, again, you're seeing that participation level kind of, it mimics Dragon Drive and no prep because I always, I've learned with Dragon Drive stuff is that you get to choose your misery level. You get to, you know, right. you get to choose whether you want to try to drive a pro mod on the street or you want to take your Hellcat and, you know, just make the crews to do it. And it's the same thing with no prep kings and Dragon Drive kind of um, share that. That they're yeah, and, and there's a lot of classes that you can you know, your budget can can reach. You know, what I mean, there, you don't have to have the Tom Bailey Pro Mod style car or the Larry Larson Pro Mod style truck or whatever. You you figure out what your budget can. Uh, it's like anything else. As you evolve, as you evolve your interest, you're going to figure out how to uh, how to keep on getting better and faster. That's what race car people do. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, it draws people in to participate and you see kind of like that, you know, that, that evolution of, well, it started out as just a challenger. The next thing you know, it's Vixen, you know, it's like, it's that level right. of like addiction goes with it. And that's what you see with the dragon you know, drive stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you see people, you see people that started in the slower classes end up in the faster classes. And you, you know, at that point, Hey, you know, you've, You've uh, you've evolved. This person has evolved because he's so into it, he or she, and and they want to keep getting better and faster. I mean, that's what that's what we do as racers. We want to be better, faster. So, well, Jack, our time is starting to wind down here, and I always like to throw a fun question at my my, my guests. And for you, <laughs> you know, being a team owner. You know, now you have. Let's say you have the opportunity to race both cars at the same time. The Bruder brothers are going to still, you know, drive Jackal, but you need to put someone in Vixen. You have access to the Dragzine time machine, so you can go back to any era of drag racing and grab any driver you want, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Who are you going to grab to come drive Vixen? Any time period, you know, even a modern person. But let's say you have access all the way back to you know the fifties, all the way up till now. Who are you going to put in Vixen? I'm going to put Ronnie Socks in Vixen. 
Oh, the Mopar connection. Nice. That's it. You know, I've, I've met Ronnie and I was a, a huge fan of Ronnie and, and, you know, honestly, he was a big influence on me being a Mopar guy and a Hemi guy. I've been a Hemi guy all my life. Well, most of my life, uh, from the, from the late eighties on, I've always run Hemi cars and, uh, he has probably been the biggest influence on me to want to be like him. Cause I always ran manual transmission cars and he did too. And, um, you know, the cars we have nowadays, most of them are, you know, automatic cars with this crazy uh, technology with the hydraulic systems and the pumps and the converters and all that. But, you know, in the end of the day, when you're running no prep cars, you know, it, you don't really want to be trying to shift gears with a manual transmission. It's not going to really work that well, I don't think. Uh, no one's really tried it. But uh, with what we've got going on right now, I think Ronnie would be happy to drive fix it. <laughs> you know, you have him in the car, then you have Herb McCandless being the uh, the crew guy. You talk about yeah. the, the the ultimate Mopar vehicle right there. Sox Martin and, you know, Mr. Four Speed himself all on the same team. Yeah. Wow, that would be yeah. that'd be wild. That would be an unbelievable situation, yes. So that's the guy, Ronnie Sox. Well, Jack, appreciate your time. Now is your opportunity. I always give my guests the ability to, you know, pull the old John Force trick and thank everybody they need to thank and tell them where they can learn about what you got going on. So the floor is yours, my friend. Tell people who you need to thank and where they can learn more about, you know, your business, the race team, the whole deal. Uh, well, as far as our no prep King Defer, I like to thank uh, all our sponsors of BP race fuels, TND rockers, the Soma racing engines, um, who's your tires. We have a lot of folks that help us out summit racing, uh, Cam's Racing Engines, we have uh, a great group of backers in terms of, uh, you know, product support, Lucas Oil. Uh, that, those are some instrumental folks that support us, and uh, we're very thankful for that. And in terms of uh, wanting to check out what the race teams are doing, we have Vixen Hellcat on Facebook, and um, we've got Jackal on instagram jackal 757 va and you know you can find out pretty much whatever's going on on those pages as far as the injector business atomizer fuel components.com that's our official website and atomizer racing injectors on social media and uh you know check it out we've got some cool stuff coming down the pike and i think people are going to be very interested so well, Jack, thanks for being on the show, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you at the track again very soon. All right. Same here, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much.